Our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. And there we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have yet, not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as a son. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and life? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplined us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Thanks, Armin, for that reading. Um, we're moving through and getting towards the end of a, a nine-part series Nine marks of a healthy church. Uh, churches need to do health checkups. Uh, hopefully, uh, we don't always go to the doctor just when something's really bad. We're supposed to go for regular checkups so they can hopefully prevent things that could be bad. And so we didn't pick this series because we're a messed up church and we're an unhealthy church. But to do the checkup and say, what are the ways in which we can make sure that we are a healthy church, biblical church, and understand what healthy means in terms of what the Bible says healthy means. And so as we move through these marks, uh, some of them might strike you as, wow, I really didn't think that was important. I really didn't think that was a big deal. I would really encourage you to, to use the resources, the book recommendations that I put in there, um, I have audio files, interviews with pastors, uh, videos on YouTube of sermons and, and things like that, workshops that you can access. Come to me and I can give you some of those things. But if you feel like you have question marks swirling around or you're not sure some of this stuff is new to you, I encourage you to not just take my word for it and then go home like, huh, that was, you know, to investigate that, look at that and, and search those scriptures that support those ideas because we want to be a church that really has these things under our belt. Um, and so I commend to you 
the book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. It's a pretty easy read, and he's got tons of resources in there uh, for, for you guys. It's not just for pastors who study Greek or something like that. This is stuff that um, is accessible. And another book is uh, Handbook of Church Discipline, which we'll be talking about today, uh, Church Discipline, by J.E. Adams. And this is, this is a book that um, it's thin. It, it doesn't take long to go through. Uh, but it's it's a really good resource for what church discipline should look like. Uh, so I just want to commend those to you. Um, I'd like to invite you in a word of prayer as we begin so that God can really settle our hearts and get us ready to feed on his word, whet our appetites to to feast on his truth this morning. Father, we ask that you would um, open our eyes to see what you would have us see here and that even though... We might have trickled in here late or raced against the clock as we realized we lost an hour and uh, quickly find our seed. And um, we just ask that you would settle us down, allow us to be still, know that you are God, and open your word to us this morning so we can allow you to be God in all the areas of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oftentimes, I, I, when we go out to restaurants as a family, we go out with some friends and things like that, uh, one of the kids will act up, and I'll reprimand them. And if it's, if it's real bad, I'll say, let's go to the bathroom. Everybody at the table knows they don't have to go potty. We're going to the bathroom for discipline. And inevitably, somebody at the table will say something like, oh, no, no, that's okay, that's okay, they're not bothering me. And I haven't said it yet, but, you know, it goes in my mind, I want to say, I'm not disciplining them for you. I'm disciplining them for them. Oftentimes, people will say, well, let's let it go. Hey, they're children. It's okay. Well, no, it's not okay if they're knowingly misbehaving. And if I withhold discipline, it'll hurt them. All right, so those of you who are parents understand that uh, those screaming children downstairs are a joy <laughs> and a privilege. But as parents, we're entrusted with the task of training them in a godly way. That does not mean let them run amok and do whatever they want. That means you look at the Bible and say, this is how you're supposed to live, and you teach that to the children. Now, this isn't a sermon about how to raise kids, but this is a sermon about discipline. And I want to look at that passage one more time that Armin read for us to get an idea of where the Bible comes in on the purpose of discipline. And we're not talking yet about church discipline. We're just talking about discipline in general, how God disciplines his children. And I just want to read, let's just begin at verse 3 and and, and go to verse 11. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted yet to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And he quotes a proverb here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he 
receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, he's writing this before Dr. Phil, right? These people, they, they understood a father is going to discipline the children. And sometimes it takes more than just affirming their good qualities. Sometimes it takes firm reproof, uh, rebuke, admonition. So that the children know that is wrong. That will not be tolerated. This is the way to go. And they're trained up by that and it produces righteousness and peace. It produces the fruit in their lives. So God disciplines His Son. So Christ, the head of the body, disciplines the members of the body. That's not an inference. That's the same thing. God disciplining His sons, Christ, the head of the church, disciplining the members of His own body, that's that's the same thing. That's God disciplining His sons. And if Christ disciplines the members of His body, the church needs to discipline the members of its body. Now that is an inference, but it's a logical conclusion from what we looked at last week. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that we need to make sure that we have our eye on discipline such that if we're engaged in part of a church that doesn't exercise discipline and lets everybody do whatever they want, let everybody believe whatever they want, let everybody come in and do however they want to do, and let anybody serve who wants to serve, then you need to go, wait a minute, this church isn't providing something that this pastor is saying, I need, and I need discipline. And that doesn't mean everybody walks into the church office and I'm handing out spiritual detentions. It means as a body, corporately together, we engage in discipling and disciplining each other. Sometimes that becomes an official thing. And I want to look at that. Um, If we're not disciplining as a church, if we're not looking at a passage like this and other passages that talk about official church discipline and getting serious about it, then it's dangerous. I mean, it's, it's actually it's an unhealthy thing. I want to read uh, a quote really briefly that I found in this book. It's in his chapter on church discipline, obviously. And he's quoting a Greek scholar who wrote about 50 years ago, H.E. Dana. Now listen to what this scholar observes. The abuse of discipline is reprehensible and destructive. Some of you maybe could think personally of churches that you've been a part of that abuse discipline. That is reprehensible and destructive, but not more than the abandonment of discipline. Two generations ago, the churches were applying discipline in a vindictive and arbitrary fashion that justly brought it into disrepute. There are many churches just leaving the church in droves because of an abuse of church discipline historically. 
Today, though, the pendulum has swung to the other extreme. Discipline is almost wholly neglected. It is time for a new generation of pastors to restore this important function of the church to its rightful significance and place in church life. Now, I shared with you my last year at Trinity, I, I had to do a paper on church life. I forget what the, the overall topic was, and we could just pick any kind of topic that fits underneath that thing. And I ended up picking up church discipline. Because I said, sometime soon I'm going to be called to a post, and I'm going to walk in as pastor, and maybe they're doing church discipline a bad way. Maybe they're not doing church discipline at all. Maybe they're doing church discipline rightly, and I wouldn't be able to recognize it because I have no idea, I haven't investigated it. And I find that a lot of my peers and a lot of pastors around haven't really looked into the matters of church discipline. They just do it the way their churches do, did it when they grew up um, or, or just don't pay attention to the issue at all. And um, we all know that when I put it out there, hey, next week we're going to preach on church discipline. I had people like, uh, I think I'm going to be sick next Sunday. You know, it's not five keys to a healthy marriage. It's nine keys to a healthy church. And if you don't care about the church, then you won't care about the message. But I hope that if you identify yourself as someone who's an integral part of your local body, you'll care about how the church conducts discipline. If you're a visitor and you're not a part of the church and you're looking for a church, do you want a church that ignores issues and uh, pretends like things don't exist and puts things under the rug? Or do you want a church that calls it out when they see it? That's wrong. I would hope you'd want the latter. At least that's what a good biblical church is going to provide. Um, the idea of church discipline, it, it's not all corrective. It's not all reproof and excommunication and kicking people out of the church and all that kind of stuff. But, but discipline is always going on. It's formative discipline. Right? When I teach my kids good things to do, that's discipline too. When I teach them how to clean up or when I teach them how to how to pray. I mean, that's that's formative discipline. But what I want to call our attention today is is corrective discipline. Uh, formative discipline is everything the church does to reign, raise and train disciples, teach you how to pray, teach you how to read the word, teach you how to get connected in small groups and, and in fellowship with other believers. That's all formative. Your, God is using those things to form your character and form who you are. But then corrective church discipline is when a church rebukes a disciple who sinned and hasn't repented. Okay, that's corrective church discipline. That's the confusing one. That's the one that gets abused. And that's what I want to look at really briefly today. And I want to use this passage in Hebrews to set the table to look at another passage. I know I normally don't do that, but let's just turn to 1 Corinthians 5. And that's where we're going to be the rest of today. But 1 Corinthians 5, where we looked last week and we talked about the importance of membership 1 Corinthians 5 is probably the clearest example we have in Scripture of a corrective church discipline. What does that look like? I mean, is it is it somebody wears something that the pastor doesn't like and, and kicks? Somebody says, go Yankees, and the pastor, you know, you're excommunicated, brother, you know? Or what What is it that constitutes church discipline? And when church discipline happens, what's it supposed to look like? You know, do we do we do we storm their houses on the lawn with torches? Do we conduct witch hunts? What does church discipline look like? And so, I'm sure that many of you have different responses to that floating around in your heads. And um, I don't want to be the cowardly pastor that just 
pretends like some of these passages don't exist and let's just get to the love passages and that stuff. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 5. Look at what it says and then see how best we can apply that to being a church that's a healthy church, a biblical church. 1 Corinthians 5, 1-13. Let's just take a couple verses at a time. It starts out like this. Paul writing to this church, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. We read later that they were boasting about this. In verse 6, you guys are boasting about this. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. There's two sins going on here. There's a sin that the guy is doing. The guy is, we don't know if it's his stepmother or his actual mother. We kind of give the guy benefit of the doubt that it's not his actual mother. Some people give him the benefit of the doubt is maybe his father passed away. doesn't matter. He's, he's, he's sleeping with his, at the very least, his stepmom. So obviously there's that sin going on. But that's not what Paul is rebuking. He's rebuking the church for not doing anything about it. That's the, that's the rebuke in 1 Corinthians 5. He's not saying, and let me just take a second to talk to that immoral brother. You're wrong, you're wrong. No. He says, here's what I hear. There's someone among you that's outrightly, publicly, shamefully in this sin. And you guys, not only have you not done anything about it, you guys are in the opposite end. You guys are boasting about it. Like, oh, look, look. He sins more and grace abounds more. That kind of thing. So he's rebuking the church for not doing anything about it. So right there, when when there's an issue in a church and someone is in a spot like this, the church must respond or else the church is not living up to the standard that Paul is laying down in these letters. The church has to respond in some way, in a disciplinary way. Some of you may say, well, that's pretty arrogant of the church. No, what's arrogant, Paul says, is not dealing with it. But in humility, the church has to come in humility, say, this does not please God. This is wrong. That is not okay what you're doing. That is not pretty or helpful. But it's discipline. So he further explains in verse 9 and 11, that um, well, let's look at verse three to five. I got just a little ahead of myself. Three to five, the next couple of verses. Um, what to do? What do you do with, with a man like this? A situation like this? What is the church supposed to do? Verses three to five. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's kind of a weird passage. Deliver him to Satan. Are we supposed to, you know, duct tape his mouth, handcuff him, throw him in the back of a trunk and drive him to a Satan worshiper community and throw him in there and be like, this is where you belong. You know, what does he mean? Hand him over to Satan. We just draw a pentagram on his head and, and. Make him walk around and publicly shame him or something. What Paul is saying by handing him over to Satan is he's saying this person is supposed to be in the community 
where he's rescued from Satan's realm, where he's not of the world, he's of Christ. And as a church, we need to make sure that if this person is unrepentant and says, no, what I'm doing is okay, what I'm doing is fine, I don't care what you say, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't care what Jesus says, well then as a church, the community needs to put them out and say, you are not a Christian. And anyone who's not a Christian is already in Satan's realm. So he's not talking about a, a satanic worship community. He's just talking about the world. People that are lost. People that are still enslaved to sin. And that the church has a right to put the person out there and say, that's you. You belong out there. You are not part of the believing community. And that's why I tell people all the time, people, well, um, so someone's dating somebody. And I go, is this person a believer? Yeah, he says he's a believer. Yeah, a lot of people say they're believers. You know these polls that come out? Such and such percentage of Americans say they're born again. What did that poll look like? Who asked the questions? Was it an index card? Was it a paper? we got to really find out what somebody thinks they mean by, I'm a born-again Christian. Because this guy would have said all day long, he would have checked that box. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I, get, I said the prayer. Yeah, I, I did baptism. Yeah, I went to Grace 101. Lucas, thanks. You know. But at some point, the church needs to show, here's what you say, here's how you live. No, what you say is false, brother. You are not a brother in the Lord. And so you hand them over to Satan by making them know that they're not a part of the believing community. Some of you might go, well, what's the big deal of that? His name is on a membership roll, let's say. And then we say, void, you're not a member because we don't. What's the big deal? The big deal is that the affirmation of the church to your claim to Christianity is huge. And we could all say, I'm Christian. I'm Christian. I'm a believer. But when we come to a church, and the church affirms that. And go, you know, I've looked at your life. I look how you worship. I look how you live. You are a believer. Your fruit shows that you're of the right tree. You produce fruit. You produce the marks of a genuine Christian. First John, God is love. Right? That's how we live. We love one another. And you show that. And we affirm that as a church. Somebody called me once and um, questioned the involvement of somebody in a ministry. I said, well, this person's a member. And they said, so? And I said, that means that their name isn't just on some piece of paper that pleases me. It means we interviewed and investigated and taught and discipled. And we as a church affirm that this person is a believer in Christ in good standing. Do you have anything to the contrary to that? No. Well, then I don't want to hear it. So the church's affirmation of your standing before the Lord is vital. And it's important. This person was not walking the talk. And Paul is saying you need to put him outside of that fellowship of believers. He unwraps it a little bit because in verse 9 and 11, he further explains not to associate with the person. Disassociate yourself. Break fellowship with this person. And in verse 11, he says not to even eat with this person. That's a little bit more than just saying your membership is revoked. Now there's an onus being put on the members in the church. This isn't just a pastor thing. The members have to agree with this move. In 2 Corinthians, he says the punishment by the majority was enough. So there's a majority. This isn't a pastor thing. 
This is the pastor got ticked off with a phone call, and now this person's under church discipline. It needs to be a church members thing where we say, okay, we affirm or refuse to affirm this person's standing with the Lord. That's why when members come in, we do a membership vote. Yes, I did the class. And yes, I conducted an interview. And yes, I asked tough questions. But at the end of the day, the members need to say, yeah, we affirmed it. No, I don't, I don't know anything about this that would be the contrary to what this person's claiming in their lives. So what do we do with this refusal to associate? What does that look like? There's two extremes. Some read this and they think this means totally shun, totally don't talk to, delete them from your Facebook, from your email account, from your Twitter, from your Rolodex if you're over 60. They don't exist, right? They're dead to you. Never talk to them again. I think that's a wrong extreme. There's another extreme that says, well, we'll just, just be friends with them and in the hopes that eventually they'll come around. I don't think that lines up with this either. But I think the, 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 in between those two extremes, we have to find our place somewhere. And I think a safe place to be is to understand that we do not want to make the person feel that what they're doing is okay with us as a church. That's the point that Paul is getting at. You're wrong because you're boasting. You're wrong because you're okay with it. You have to not be okay with it. What's that going to look like? Don't associate with the person. I don't think that means that the person is never to step foot in the church building again. I don't think that means that you're never to pick up a phone and call the person or anything like that. Contact is necessary for follow-up if the person is going to be restored. Galatians 6.1 says, if someone's caught in sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently. How do you restore someone gently if you have zero contact with the person, they fell off the face of the earth as far as you're concerned? So contact is necessary for follow-up. But while under excommunication, that's what churches call this move, the excommunication from the... While the person is under excommunication, that contact that is made with the person needs to be missional. So in other words, it's not okay for someone who's under church discipline like this, and after that meeting where they just got put out of the community, and I just take them to Chili's and go, yeah, that really stinks. Sorry about all this churchy stuff. It's kind of weird sometimes. So anyway, let's watch the Cubs. I think Paul's saying, no, no, you have to do something a little more drastic than that to let the person know this is not okay. So if you're going to take the person to Chili's, I don't think that necessarily conflicts with what Paul is saying if you're sitting them down to rebuke them again, to talk to them about it again, to evangelize them on this issue and say, but this is not okay. And if third person is going, look, we can hang out, but I'm not going to talk about this, then you go, then we're not hanging out. I think that's what Paul is getting at when he's saying the church community. And guys, I can't make you do that. I can push for church discipline of a member. We can have a members meeting and we can take a vote. And then out there, out there, you guys are meeting, you watch the game, do Thanksgiving together, and no one's ever talked. I can't make you guys do that. This is why every member needs to recognize it's upon you personally and individually to take this and say, okay, we're going to stick together on this. If we as a community vote and say someone is excommunicated, then it's on all of us to behave in a way where we make sure that person feels the weight of that excommunication. Yes, you can come to church and you can listen to the sermon, but you cannot serve. You cannot function as a member. You cannot teach. You cannot lead a small group. You can't lead worship. You can't go up there and read scripture or pray. You, you are under discipline. And you need to fix this thing in your life. 
And excommunication, I think, is meant to be temporary. In 2 Corinthians 2.6, he says, okay, guys, that's, that's enough. The punishment by the majority, that's, that's good. You know, let's, we don't want to kill the guy. You know, if, if he's sorrowful and repentant, got to let him back. You know, so it's almost like the Corinthians went the opposite way and just like booted the guy like they don't care. And, and Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he's trying to bring him back like enough is enough. That, that punishment was enough. So excommunication is meant to be temporary. If the person repents, you bring him back, you restore them. So this means that church discipline at this level requires the effort of the whole membership. Requires the effort of the whole membership. Then he moves into a couple more verses. Why do we do this? He says, verse 5, You were delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Why excommunicate a person? Why ever put somebody out of the community? Well, first of all, because your hope is that they'll get saved. This is what we talked about when we talked about the gospel and the healthy mark of biblical conversion. We don't tell people, come to church and um, we have this nice financial seminar. Come to Jesus and he'll fix your debt. You know, oh, you, you've got uh, an illness? Come to Jesus. He's the healer. He'll, he'll, he'll heal you. Um, got messed up, messed up kids? Come to Jesus. He'll teach you how to be a parent. He'll fix your kids. Then you'll have a nice... No, the gospel is not centered around these different felt needs. The gospel is about the profound need that separates us from God. And so excommunication is trying to let somebody recognize that profound need. It is not okay for you to live like this. You are lost. You need Christ. You need the grace of God in your life. And if you're truly not saved, you need to get saved for real. And the person needs to understand that. So it's for the good of the sinner. Hand over to Satan so that his spirit might be saved. Not so we'll never see him again. Not so we can hate them or be vindictive. The goal is restoration. But it's also for the good of the church. Look what he says starting in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven is what would rise, make the bread rise. And verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What is the whole thing about leaven and lumps and a church needs to be a good lump? But a Passover, they would have to, from that Passover meal, for the whole next week, have to eat bread that has no leaven in it. Well, the metaphor is that spiritually as a church, because Jesus was the ultimate Passover lamb, for the rest of our lives we have to stay away from leaven, which is symbol for sin it's a metaphor for the sin that we allow to come and and dirty our lives he's saying we need to verse 8 we need to therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven the leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth we have to do it for the good of the church it's for the good of the person but it's also for the good of the church if we don't do that not only will the person probably persist in their sin and never really get it recognize that, wow, it's really fun sleeping with my father's wife or my stepdad, stepmom, whatever it is, Jerry Springer show thing. But I'm going to keep doing it because what's the big deal? We need to show them that is a big deal. Because if you persist in that, it could be very likely you're not saved. That doesn't mean as soon as you sin, you lose your salvation. It means if somebody's in a predicament like that where they're unrepentant, and they're persisting and willing to continue in this sin, even though the church is saying it's wrong. 
the church is attesting to the fact that Christ doesn't approve of that, and they don't care. It's probably true that the person isn't saved. So not only is it good for the person, but it's good for the church because the church needs to make sure that we make clear lines of demarcation. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is what it doesn't look like to be a Christian. This is what a membership covenant community looks like that's worshipful and loving. This is a group that we don't believe they are doing that. And I think when the church allows this and this to get all mixed up, People that are not members, not committed, not really investigated by the church are serving. Right? People who are committed to the church, and every, but they're not serving, they're not attending. This mix isn't good for the church. We need to make sure that the people that are the insiders, people that are the members, people that are the committed group, they're living up to the expectations of Scripture. That puts work on us. So if somebody's gone for a few weeks, yeah, we have to pick up the phone call. Hey, where you been? Oh, I got into a car accident. Oh, let us come visit you. Oh, I don't feel like I need church anymore. I just watched this preacher on television. Hey, that's a problem. Right? And so we need to make sure we're looking around and watching our sheep. That doesn't mean we become a legalistic community. We all come to church with white gloves and check the dust on everybody. That's the abuse. But the other end of the spectrum is everybody come, worship, Fake smiles, fake handshakes. You're not really investigating. You don't. You have. You thought you heard something about cheating on his wife, but hey, none of my business. What am I going to do? Break up a household? Whatever. That's the other abuse. We need to be concerned about each other's lives and be in each other's faces about our walks. So it's for the good of the sinner. It's for good of the church. One of Tina's family members was going to a church that had no membership and therefore had no discipline. Maybe not therefore, but they had neither. Um, and one of the ushers was known to pretty much everybody there that he's continually cheating on his wife. And they show up, and this guy's an usher, and he's greeting you, and he's giving you the bulletin, he's saying hi, and he's taking you to your seat, and he's passing out communion. And he's publicly, unrepentantly, sleeping with another woman and then going home to his wife. Well, then the wife left the church because the church wouldn't do anything about it. And I can see where the church is coming from. Well, we don't have any standards. He has two functioning hands and he can walk, so he passes out bulletins. He has a nice smile, his teeth are straight, so we let him greet at the door. There's no spiritual standard. If a church has a spiritual standard and the standard is breached, what do you do? If you don't do anything, you have no standard. Newsflash. There is no standard. But if you have a standard, this is what a Christian looks like. This is what believers are supposed to be. Then when that's breached, the church has a responsibility to come around that person and let them know that was breached. Not to be vindictive, but to love the person enough to let them know when they've gone off the rails. I don't discipline my children because it's fun. I don't like to interrupt my meal, go walk the bathroom. Wait for someone to get out of a stall. Go in there. Close the stall so I can keep this thing private. Go all the way back. My food is cold. My drink isn't refilled. And people are looking at me funny. And now our evening is getting late. It's not fun. I do it because the child needs it. I don't do it because I want to do it and it's fun. And then later that child will see that that was necessary. And it will bring fruit in their life as well as mine. So the issue is one of standards 
takes a couple more verses. Let's move through this. In verse 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So as soon as he says, you are not to associate with sexually immoral people, and then you go, wait a minute, my coworker in the cubicle next to me is sleeping with her boyfriend, but they're not married yet. Should I switch cubicles? He's saying, I'm not saying, should I never have lunch? Should I never talk to the person? I'm not saying the sexual moral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you need to go out of the world. No, he's talking about something different. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. So what necessitates church discipline? And I have churches that will actually make a list. These are the sins that will get you kicked out. And then everything else, eh, what are you going to do? I don't, I don't subscribe to that. First reason why is because Paul makes two lists and he switches the list. First he says that it's sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters. Right? That's in verse 10. And you and I who would like to kind of get over would say, okay, that's four sins. If I can do so, if I do something that doesn't fall under that category, then I'm okay. The problem is then he switches the list in verse 11. And he says sexual immorality, greed, that's the same. He says idolater, that's the same. Then he says reviler. Then he says drunkard. And then he says swindler. So I don't think Paul is trying to make, here's a comprehensive list. Anything that doesn't fall under this list, that's fine. Whatever. Um... Beats his wife. Well, he doesn't really revile her verbally. He just beats her. So, yeah, he's fine. He's fine. Uh, and somebody says, well, you know, as long as you, um, you can beat your wife and stay in the church, as long as you're not drunk when you're doing it, because it says drunkard. Come on. Same thing with the spiritual gifts. In Romans, you have one list. and in, the, in the, another passage, you have another list. Paul's not listing all the spiritual gifts that exist, anything else that you're good at, and the Spirit is using it and manifesting himself through your life, but it's not in my list. Sorry. He has different lists. Here he switches the list, not because he's trying to pinpoint only the sins that can be disciplined. He's using examples of what it, when a Christian looks like the world. He's saying, I'm not saying this is all you say from people in the world. I'm saying this is all yourself from people who are in the church, have the name of brother or sister, and are acting like people in the world. And they're unrepentant about it. That's the key. So the issue is not which sin. The issue is persistence and unrepentance. And then he makes a really crucial point in verse 12 about who discipline is for. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What makes somebody inside a church? Well, first we have to answer what is a church? Is a church a building? Yes or no? Is a church a building? No. Good, because that would have had to be Mark 7.5 or something. I would have had to insert it for next week. Yeah, of course church is not a building. It's not bricks and pews and carpet and pulpits and pianos. Church is a group of people. And so when he says, I'm saying to you that we don't judge people outside the church. We judge people inside the church. He's saying people that are inside that people group. That membership. Guys, he's saying membership without saying members. I think if you and I would sit there for a second and just 
let go of the fact that we don't have to find the word membership to see that it's in Scripture. And then in 2 Corinthians 2, he says the punishment put on by the majority. The majority of whom? Everybody that sits in a pew? No. The people that the church recognizes as spiritually stable, healthy, obedient to the Lord, and the church can trust those people with that kind of vote. So he says, we're not judging outsiders. As soon as somebody comes in, you go, hi, how are you doing? What do you do for a living? Oh, I'm I'm a prostitute. Oh, you need to get out. No, we're not judging outsiders. We judge those who came and have been given the name brother or sister by the church. You'll notice that it doesn't say in verse 11, anyone who says they're a brother, but everyone who bears the name of brother. And I think that is what Paul is getting at when he says you are in charge as a church to put people out and put people in. You put people in who you say, yeah, that's a brother. We name you as brother. We name you as sister. You're in. When we put somebody out, you're saying you're not a brother. You can't bear that name. You're under discipline. So Paul's saying, look, I'm not telling you to discipline outsiders, those in the world. They already have a judgment from God. I'm telling you that you have a responsibility to discipline, judge those among you, your brothers and sisters. And I think as healthy believers, we want church discipline, guys. We want that to be a practice of the church, that it's there. We want formative as well as corrective discipline. I found it interesting that the subtitle to this book is is called Handbook of Church Discipline. A right and privilege of every church member. A right and privilege. And it's a picture of one guy with his hand on another guy's shoulder and kind of putting his face in a mirror. I know you can't see it from over there. But it's coming around somebody and go, look in the mirror. And the mirror is the Word of God. Let me put this book down when I say Word of God. I recommend it, but it's not the Word of God. But we take people and we say, look at the mirror. Look at what God is saying in your life. It doesn't match Get it fixed. And they go, I don't want to fix that. Then that's when church discipline comes in so that they know what it means to be a part of the believing community or not. I'll close with this. Um, Since I opened up with an illustration about parenting, I'll close with one. Uh, We know a family. We have a couple of kids. And uh, they don't get disciplined. I'm not saying they don't get spanked. I mean, there's really just, there's no discipline. It's they're running around. And and at first it was difficult for Tina to have Raquel hang out with their kids because uh, they're stealing and they're jumping around and they're talking back to their moms. And she said, if you're not going to be able to control yourself and not do what they're doing, we can't hang out with those kids. And Raquel's been doing really well. But as... Tina continues to know this family and talk to them and meet them places and stuff that the kids grow a little bit older. We see diverging paths where you know, Raquel and Elias are they're obedient, pretty, pretty obedient, and we're training them. And they, we feel like those kids love us to death. You know, if I go away for a couple of days, oh, Daddy, where have you been? You know, and with Mom, that time's 10, you know. And then when we get together with this family, we don't see that in their kids. Now, these kids are allowed to do whatever they want. They want candy, they get candy. They want to run around, they get to run around. They want to go outside, they go outside. They want a rated M video game, they get a rated M, whatever. Now, isn't that the high life? Isn't that paradise for a child? 
one of the last times that Tina saw this family, the little boy in that family just goes, I hate you, Mom! Why? Mom didn't do anything except let him do whatever he wants. Kids have an intuitive sense that when you don't discipline them and give them structure and help them understand what authority is and that there's right and wrong, they understand that you are failing them as a parent. As a church, when there's people in the church and they worship and there's standards and those standards are breached and the church doesn't do anything about it, we're failing the people. We might as well close the doors. Church discipline is not only necessary, it's good. And like the author of Hebrews says, discipline's painful in the moment. But in the end, it's pleasant because of what it produces. Let's pray. Father, issues like this are not uh, the highlight of my preaching calendar. I haven't been wringing my hands together just in great anticipation of talking about church discipline. Lord, we thank you that there are passages like this that in my study I scratch my head and sometimes think, why in the world did Paul say that and make it difficult for us? But after reflection and prayer, we realize that's there to make it easier for us so that we have something to go by to understand what it means to have a believing community and name people as brothers and sisters. So that when the standards that the community believes and affirms is breached by someone who's submitted to that standard, we can help them see with the weight of our disassociation that that's wrong. So we ask that you would give us the boldness to do this when we need to, the wisdom to do it right, and most importantly, the love to do it well. And we ask that you would train us, form us into the people you want us to be. And when it hurts, that we'll have the grace to bounce back in repentance and grow from those experiences. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.